a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. She was right. And thus I clothed my naked villainy with odd old ends stolen out of holy writ and seem a saint when most I play the devil. In Shakespeare's Richard III, Act I ends with him glorifying his evil nature and declaring he will stop at nothing in his ambition. He has no conscience and lays blame for his villainy on his ugly deformed body while delighting in his ability to play saint or devil. A fitting likeness to the killer in this story, saint and devil, Jekyll and Hyde, charming and charismatic, conniving and violent. No remorse, no regret, and an arrogance that led to his downfall. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. It's early morning, August 22nd, 2022, and I'm taking a trip down memory lane. I'm waiting for a bus in my old hometown, and I'm heading into the High Court like I used to do many years ago as a court reporter. But this is for something truly exceptional. This is for a murder that happened in 1978. And for the first time in UK history, I have been granted permission to record the actual audio of this trial. Previously, I'd have to scribble it all down in shorthand and either type it up for the newspaper or read it out loud verbatim for a TV report. So you're going to hear the voices of the witnesses in the witness box as they give their testimony, which is truly something remarkable. And I really view it as an honour and privilege that I have been granted this access. And it's because of my previous work that the judiciary approved me to do this. So strap yourselves in. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy. I got on the bus and travelled into the city of Aberdeen. To get to the court, I walked down the Grand Main Street, Union Street. It's a mile long and every building is grey granite. Designed in the early 19th century, it's a feat of engineering, with arches carrying the street over the Denburn Valley. It holds the record for the world's largest single-span granite bridge at 130 feet across. The street is almost identical to what it would have been in the 1970s when Dr Brenda Page moved here from Edinburgh to take up a post at Aberdeen University's genetics department. The shops and cafes will have changed hands, churches have become bars and nightclubs and the foot traffic has diminished partly due to the pandemic and partly due to a new shopping mall drawing away some of the bigger retailers. 
but the grand exteriors of the large grey stone buildings look the same as to when they were built. Brenda was murdered before I was born, but my involvement with her case began long before this walk to court. Two decades ago, I made a documentary on her as part of a series called Unsolved for STV, which I wrote and produced alongside my boss at the time, Donald John MacDonald, who died suddenly on Christmas Eve 2020 of a heart attack. I think he thought of me as his protégé. We're both bulldogs when it came to chasing bad guys. And this case was one that stayed with us. We'd remained friends and often had phone calls, despite what country or time zone I was in. I dedicate this series to him, because I know how much it meant to him for justice to be done for Brenda. So before we get into the court case, I'd like you to hear the audio of the first time I encountered the man who I was soon to be faced with again, sitting in the dock, charged with the murder of Dr. Brenda Page. It was 2002. Series producer DJ, as he was affectionately known, along with myself and camera operator, Alison Arias, had travelled to Leiden in Holland. It's a university town, but we didn't get to see much of it. We had one mission, and only a few days to complete it. We hired a car and drove to the outdoor parking lot of a high-rise apartment building. I remember my heart racing as we got there, and identified the door of the apartment where we believed our target to live. I held in my hands a photograph, taken in the mid-1970s, showing Brenda and a tall, thin man with brown hair. Dr Christopher Harrison. Her husband. Her killer. We'd been working with the police who were reinvestigating her case, as well as witnesses, Brenda's colleagues, friends and family. He'd never been charged, but the police were open with the fact that he was their one and only suspect. They'd confided in us some of the details, so as journalists, we could be satisfied that it was in the public interest to confront this man. The police had had their shot in 1978. Now we had ours. With our necks craned, looking up to the exposed landings and doors, the initial adrenaline started to fade as no one came out. It got dark. We gave up and checked into our hotel. The next day we arrived early, hoping we'd have success, but the waiting game continued. Starving DJ volunteered to go and get us some snacks and returned with big cream buns. I took a bite, and in that moment, a man came out. Here's what happened. Mr. Harrison? Mr. Harrison? Mr. Harrison? We're from Grampian Television. We'd like to talk to you about the murder of your ex-wife, Brenda Page. Many people believe you're responsible, Mr. Harrison. Did you kill her? Mr. Harrison, there was an interim interdict about out against you because you threatened her with violence. Did you kill Brenda Page? Did you kill your ex-wife, Mr. Harrison? It's a simple question. The entire time he's trying to get away, and at one point he batted the microphone as I moved it towards him, in the vain hope he might reply, even out of annoyance at my mistake in calling him Mr. and not Doctor, a title you'll learn he was extremely proud of due to his PhD. I'm not very tall at five foot three. Christopher Harrison, or Kit as he's known, is a tall, looming man, well over six feet. He was no longer the skinny man in the photo. His large frame and long legs meant I had to run to keep up with him. He crossed the road to a wooded path running alongside a waterway. There's more to this encounter, and you'll hear it later in the series.
Back in Aberdeen, and now two decades older than the green 22-year-old in the documentary footage, I was curious and a bit nervous to be in the same room as this man. I've been told he has an almost photographic memory, and he was on bail. Most people charged with murder are remanded in custody while awaiting trial, but aged 80 at the time of his arrest in 2020, and because he'd handed over his passport to police, he was not considered a flight risk. He appeared on foot with his partner of more than 40 years on his arm. Thicker set and slightly stooped, he was still instantly recognisable. Wearing a long overcoat, tweed suit, pullover, shirt and neckerchief, he looked smart, if not a little shabby. The local and national press were waiting to capture him entering the building, which was a bank from 1801, but converted to house the High Court in the early 2000s. Court 1 is upstairs and looks surprisingly modern, it's not your typical court, mainly due to its small size. Everyone, including Dr Harrison, had to traipse up the many stairs and along a corridor to enter the room. The press bench is directly to the side of the dock. There's glass at the back and sides of the long bench to prevent any attempted escapes. However, the shuffling octogenarian was unlikely to be attempting anything beyond keeping his eyes open. Unlike in the movies or TV, You'll hear me say this a lot throughout the series. Trials are not speedy, and day one is just for balloting the jury. It's not the same as in America. In Scotland, it's like pulling names out of a hat, plus some extras. And the jury members, when they are called to court the following day, have to offer up if there's a good reason for them not to sit. This would usually only be if they're connected to the case somehow. After the jury is sworn in, then the case gets started and straight into the witnesses. There are no opening speeches in Scotland, just an introduction by the judge who explains legal points to the jury. However, this did not happen. Bearing in mind this trial had already been delayed due to the pandemic and there'd been a preliminary hearing to ensure the legal teams for the Crown and Defence were ready, there was an unexpected request for an adjournment. The following day, technically day three, this happened. Ah, oh, Mr Morgach. Thank you, my lord. <clears throat> my lord, fo following on from what um, I advised the court of yesterday, yes. um, I continued to have discussions with um, Dr. Harrison about the matters that arose yesterday. Yes. Um, and my lord, matters have developed to such a stage that um, I have to advise the court that I seek leave to withdraw from acting on behalf of, of Dr. Harrison. Um, I, I can expand upon that if, if desired, but that, that is my position. It's very regrettable that this is happening at this stage. Um, it would be helpful perhaps if you could just, in the briefest outline, explain uh, how the situation arose. <laughs> yes, of course, my lord. Um, the situation has developed where um, I feel that I cannot continue to act in the case. Um, I feel that a situation has been reached where there is um, a breakdown in <coughs> client counsel relationship. Um, and I'm not going to go into details with no, regards to that in open court, my lord, but um, <coughs> there is, um, as I've said, matters arose which caused considerable 
discussion and exchange where there were some fairly um, <coughs> open and frank views aired, yes. possibly on both sides, Lord, but it became apparent that the um, difficulties that had arisen, despite, despite lengthy efforts, because we did try to resolve the, the problem, um, and we took most of after yesterday afternoon and met again early this morning and continued the discussions. Yes. But it became apparent, certainly to me, that the situation could not be retrieved. Um, and I found myself in a position where I, I couldn't begin to conduct a, a trial such as this. So I've just come out of the High Court and what happened in there was quite remarkable. We had heard whispers, rumours that there were problems in the defence team and that was recognised, acknowledged and spoken out in open court today when Defence QC David Mogich asked for a motion to withdraw and that motion was granted. That effectively means he was resigning as Dr Harrison's defence representation. It was a bit of a shock, I was sitting in the press bench and we couldn't quite hear what had been said. So there was a moment we all kind of like looked at each other. To, we thought we knew what he said and as he continued speaking it became clear that this meant that they were no longer going to represent Dr Harrison and our brains are immediately going, well the trial can't possibly start today, what on earth will happen now? He did explain in as full a way as he could in a court without going into detail that there had been a relationship breakdown between client and uh, lawyer and it would be effectively impossible for him to continue to represent him. He said he'd gone to, made efforts or gone to great lengths for them to try and resolve it by having discussions the previous night before and early that morning. But he said that um, he was in a situation where um, he found himself that he couldn't begin to conduct a trial such as this. Lord Richardson uh, obviously said that it was regrettable, but he did grant it. He then addressed Dr Harrison. Well, Dr Harrison, you've uh, heard uh, that Mr Mogak and indeed your solicitor are seeking leave to withdraw, and I'm minded to grant that in the circumstances that have been outlined. So the question which I need to put to you is how you wish to proceed in these circumstances. It would be open to you to represent yourself in the proceedings or uh, to seek time from the court to, to uh, obtain the services of alternative legal representation. What, what do you wish to do? Alternative representation, my lord. It was interesting for me realising I've not heard him speak before. He has quite a loud, booming voice. He's very properly spoken. He's, he's English. Um, the fact that he said, my lord, uh, at the end of each sentence, being very reverent in the way he addressed him. Something else that was also brought up with regards to finding new representation, um, David Mogach addressed the fact that he'd spent two years working on this case. There's more than 2,000 statements. And he said, this is not a case that someone can just pick up at short notice. Um, what they've been asked to do is return on Friday. Well, Dr. Harrison has to return on Friday, hopefully with a new lawyer. And what is likely to happen, even if he does get a new lawyer, is they're going to ask for an adjournment and not a case of a few weeks. This is going to be months. Obviously, as journalists, we're sitting there thinking, OK, this is not going on now, but my mind also went to Rita, her sister. She's waited 44 years for this to happen. And he was charged two years ago, so waiting another two years because of COVID, the delays with the legal system. 
then preparing herself, finally ready to give evidence. The jury had been balloted, she just needed them to be sworn in and then she would be the first witness. I cannot imagine how she feels now, knowing that this delay has occurred, uh, a very regrettable delay that was, uh, is how it was described in court. But for her, I'm not sure she would use that word regrettable. It's a tragedy for her right now. This is going to hit her hard. Rita Ling is now 88. She still lives in Ipswich in England, where she and Brenda grew up. I interviewed her for the documentary, so I'm going to let you hear part of that discussion, because at this stage in an active court case, journalists are not allowed to approach witnesses. I also don't feel it necessary to ask her the same questions I did back then and cause her upset. So you're about to hear a very young me interviewing Rita in 2002. And I start off by asking her to tell me about her little sister. Well, she was much younger than me. And when she came, it was I was 12. And it, she was like, uh, well, I was as if she had two mothers, really, because I, I'd always longed for a sister. I didn't like being an only child. And she grew up very, very quickly because she could crawl at five months and walk at ten months and she could read before she went to school. So we knew that she was quite bright. And I was doing, uh, I was at college when she was about six. And we had to do a child study. And because I've got a sister at home that I could use as this child study. and perform all these tests on her and when I took them back to the college the tutor wouldn't believe that it was a child of six that had produced all these results so we knew that she had quite a high IQ as young as that. Then she got a scholarship to the grammar school, did ever so well there and graduated towards science and she just went on from there and was determined right from the beginning to go to university. She went to London to do her degree and then she wanted to do a PhD and she went to Glasgow. And I presume she met Kit while she was at Glasgow. And when they married, they lived in Edinburgh and she commuted to Glasgow each day. I don't know how they came that she went to Aberdeen. I just presume it was a promotional work after she'd done her PhD. And how did she like um, living up in Aberdeen? She liked it very much. She said it was a bit cold, but uh, no, she was very happy there and all the holidays and the times that my mother spent there, she loved it. Describe what Brenda was like for the people who didn't know her. Well, she was full of fun and when she was around you knew she was around. She, the boys used to love her because she used to play with them and swim with them. She was a wonderful swimmer, got her life-saving certificate and she'd get them the most marvellous presents at Christmas and birthdays, really thoughtful ones and she was a very caring girl. She was soft about animals and the smaller and scrappier they were, the better. She uh, took in a lot of little kittens, feral kittens at the hospital that nobody wanted and 
they weren't trained and they were really quite wild, but she managed to tame them and brought them up. She just was a caring person. I asked her more about the marriage to Kit and what she knew of the violence her sister suffered before moving on to ask about how she learned of Brenda's death. It was July 14th, 1978. Brenda was 32 years old. How did you hear what had happened? A knock on the door when the police came. Said, uh, do you know Brenda Page? And I said, oh yes, she's my sister. Not realising what they were going to tell me and then they came in and gave me the news. And then I had to go and tell mother. That was dreadful. Not really. Well, she never got over it. She lost such a lot of weight and kept saying, oh, if only I'd gone up to stay with her when I said I would, this wouldn't have happened. And I said, well, you don't know, you might have come in for some uh, violence as well. But it was very, very dreadful time. How did you feel when they said that, you know, not only had she died, but that, that the way she, and the fact that she'd been murdered? Well, that was absolutely appalling. And when we had to go up to Aberdeen and to see her little flat, oh, that was dreadful. No, don't want to think about it. And wh why did you have to, did you have to go up to, to see the flat for any particular reason? the police wanted to see us up there and had to identify her and business to see too wasn't there we had to let them know if there was anything missing from the flat I hadn't been there but mother had so she knew that there was nothing missing Brenda's body was found in her bedroom by an elderly neighbour who described the scene as a mess of blood and hair. She was on her back in a blood-soaked nightdress with her legs hanging over the edge of the bed. She'd been struck in the face and head with a blunt instrument at least 20 times. It's what forensic psychologists would class as overkill. But we wouldn't know the actual cause of death until the trial. The case recalled on the Friday, and it was bad news. So I'm now down at the beach in Aberdeen. You can probably hear the waves gently crashing into the shore. And I've come down here just to really take a moment, even for myself, to get my head around what's happened. Because even for me as a crime journalist with many years experience, having covered many trials, I've never been in this position. Um, I've never witnessed uh, an defence team effectively resign and then be in a situation where we've got this really major murder trial being put on hold. We knew today that the case was highly unlikely. It would have been a miracle if the trial had been kept on track to start next week. Um, it's not. His previous QC, David Mogg, appeared to explain to the court that much had happened in the last two days, that he'd handed over the 47 Lever Arch files um, to the new team, but what they don't have yet is a new senior counsel, that's Queen's counsel, that's the lead person who is talking on behalf of Dr Harrison 
doing the cross-examinations and conducting the defence case. But it's highly possible that even if there is a, a trial date set, let's say for January or February, it's perfectly conceivable that the defence team could turn up that day and ask for more time. The reason that I've been given this special permission, this privilege, this honour to share with you the audio of a murder trial, the first time in UK history a podcast has been allowed to do this, I wanted to show you that there is no time limit on justice, that even after 44 years this is finally coming to court. But right now it looks like time is running out. We have an ageing witness list, we have an ageing murder accused, he's 81 and I'm sure that uh, everyone is very aware of that. They need this trial to take place as soon as possible, not just so that it's finally done, but they need to make sure that it can actually happen because we are actually at a point where time could run out. A trial date was set for February 21st, 2023. Four days after the adjournment, Queen Elizabeth II died. This meant the QCs, the Queen's Councils, are now KCs, King's Councils. Dr Harrison obtained a KC and the trial finally began. Court. You're going to hear the voice of the Clerk of the Court, Craig Scott. His job is to make sure the court runs smoothly, which includes security and discipline, announcing the formal opening, reading the indictment and swearing in the jury. The other voices you'll hear are the Defence QC, Brian McConaughey, and the Judge, Lord Richardson. The legal representatives for the Crown and Defence wear black robes and wigs. The Judge wears a white and red robe with red crosses and a wig. His Majesty's Advocate against Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison. Have a seat. Mr McConaughey. I appear for the accused along with my learned friends, Mr Brannigan and Miss Davidson. He pleads not guilty to this indictment. There is a special defence lodged on his behalf in respect of, I think it's charge four, the uh, murder charge of alibi. Thank you, Mr McConaughey. Members of the jury, when your name is called, please come forward and take your place in the jury box, which is on my left. There are 15 members in a Scottish jury. Eight men and seven women were chosen. Next, the charges were read out by the clerk. Ladies and gentlemen, we now move on to the indictment. Ladies and gentlemen, the charges against the accused, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, are as follows. One, on various occasions between the 6th of May 1972 and the 20th of June 1976, both dates inclusive, at Hamilton Drive, Glasgow, 46 West Savile Terrace, Edinburgh, 12 Mile End Place, Aberdeen, and elsewhere in Scotland, he, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, did assault Brenda Marlon Page, his wife, born 23rd of February 1946, now deceased, and would repeatedly punch her on the head, pull her hair, strike her with books, throw cups and the contents thereof at her, kick her on the body, knock her to the ground, and forcibly eject her from the property at said 12 Mile End Place all to her severe injury. Two, on various occasions between the 6th of May 1972 and the 20th of June 1976, both dates inclusive, at Hamilton Drive, Glasgow, 46 West Savile Terrace, Edinburgh, 12 Mile End Place, 
the Genetics Department, University of Aberdeen, Medical School Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, both Aberdeen, and elsewhere in Scotland, he, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, did conduct himself in a disorderly manner, threatened violence towards Brenda Marlon Page, his wife, born 23rd of February 1946, now deceased, damaged property and her clothing, and placed her in a state of fear and alarm for her safety and commit a breach of the peace. Three, on various occasions between the 21st of June 1976 and the 13th of July 1978, both dates inclusive at Flat Ground Left, 13 Allen Street, the Genetics Department, University of Aberdeen Medical School, Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, the Treetops Hotel Springfield Road, all Aberdeen, and elsewhere in Scotland, Austria, and Mexico, he, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, did conduct himself in a disorderly manner, attend at Flat Ground Left, 13 Allen Street, and enter uninvited, force open a rear window there, disturb property within, keep a watch on persons coming and going from said flat, follow Brenda Marlon Page, born 23rd of February 1946, now deceased, then residing there, demand that she give property to him, threaten to kill her, keep track of her movements and those she was meeting with, attend academic conferences in Austria and Mexico, <coughs> knowing that she would be in attendance at said conferences and place her in a state of fear and alarm for her and other safety and commit a breach of the peace. Four, on the 14th of July 1978, at flat ground left, 13 Allen Street, Aberdeen, he, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, did force entry to said flat and assault Brenda Marlon Page, then residing there, and repeatedly strike her on the head and body with a blunt implement or implements and otherwise cause blunt force injuries to her head and body by means to the prosecutor unknown, and he did murder her. Five, on the 14th of July 1978, at an unknown location in Edinburgh, or in the course of a journey from Edinburgh to 12 Mile End Place, Aberdeen, he, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, being conscious of his guilt in respect of the crime libelled in charge four hereof, did dispose of a watch, a bag, and the contents thereof, including a pair of shoes, and this he did with the intent to destroy forensic evidence and to, uh, and to avoid detection, arrest, and prosecution in respect of said crime, and with intent to defeat the ends of justice, and he did thus attempt to defeat the ends of justice. Ladies and gentlemen, a special defence of alibi has been lodged on behalf of the panel. It is in the following terms. Uh, Venga chair for the accused states to the court that the accused pleads not guilty, and specially and without prejudice to said plea, states with regard to charge four on the indictment that on the 14th of July 1978, when the alleged crime libelled in charge four is said to have been committed, he was at his home address at 12 Mile End Place, Aberdeen. Ladies and gentlemen, I now would ask you to stand as I administer the oath and raise your right hand as I do swear by mighty God that you will and truly try the accused and give a true verdict according to the evidence. Thank you ladies and gentlemen. Have a seat please. Well, 
Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming in in answer to your citation as jurors. Even those of you who have not been picked have already performed a valuable service by forming the pool from which the jury has been drawn. Your service may not yet be at an end, though as will be obvious from what I'm about to say. Fifteen of you have been picked to serve on this jury. You've just heard the indictment read out. The indictment sets out the charges which the accused faces. You've also heard the special defence read to you. It is very important that you are completely impartial in this trial. You've heard the charges read and so you now know something about what is alleged in this case. You know that the accused is named Christopher Merlin Hartnett Harrison and also that the name Brenda Marilyn Page appears in the charges. So I'm going to ask you now a series of questions and it would be helpful if everyone here for jury service listens to these questions, even those of you who have not been picked for the jury. Please don't answer the questions out loud. If your answer to any of the questions is yes, or if you're in doubt or difficulty about your answer to any of the questions, please keep your thoughts to yourself for the moment. And also please don't discuss any issue either with other members of the jury or with other substitute jurors. Because I'm going to adjourn the court shortly. And at that point, the clerk of court will be available to speak to you. So if you do have any issue arising from any of my questions, please alert the jury attendant or otherwise alert uh, the clerk who will speak with you confidentially uh, at that point. So the questions which I would like you to consider but not please to answer out loud are these. First, do any of you know the accused either directly or indirectly? Do any of you recognise the gentleman in the dock sitting between the two security officers? Do any of you know the other person mentioned in the indictment? Do you know anyone who may be a witness in this case? Is there any reason why you could not serve impartially on this jury? Thankfully, there were no issues with the jury and the court adjourned briefly, ready for the crime case to begin. In the next episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy, the burden of an unsolved murder and the hope of it finally being solved. They say that that sort of guilt, knowledge of murder and the hounds closing in would go with a person until the day they die. Brenda's fears of her husband. He was just following her around. She thought he was stalking her. And a bombshell about a part-time job. Told her not to be so stupid. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, 
please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history, and you are for the first time in this format witnessing justice being done. <laughs>